Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with Rami Nashashibi and Lucas Johnson. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Here we are again. I'm wearing sandals now. I'm happy. So we have an hour now with um, Rami Nashashibi and Lucas Johnson. And um, again, I, we, are, we are getting to a, a bio page, which I think should be there today sometime. But there's always Wikipedia. <laughs> and I've loved Wikipedia ever since I interviewed uh, Jimmy Wales who used the word kindness more in, in, in an hour-long conversation, the word kindness, and that as an ethos of how Wikipedia comes together than anybody I've ever talked to. Um, and I have a, I'd say that because I have a hard time describing I, both of your organizations. So I'm just, right? And um, so, so Rami is the founder and leader of the Inner City Muslim Action Network, known as Iman, on the, uh, and it's the southwest side of Chicago, right? Yeah, south To be side. precise, yeah. So, and so, it would be wrong, you know, it's, it's, it is, I would say, a holistic approach to presence and healing in the inner city. Um, and we'll talk some more about that, but it was through the lens, through the approach of working with initially when you started, at a very young age, Muslim young people and families in crisis or who were vulnerable in the inner city. Um, and how did I... You know, it, 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 it was through that lens working for health, wellness, and healing in the inner city, and yes, for the Muslim community, but the broader Muslim community and all the communities they interact with every day. Um, and Lucas, oh, I also want to say about Rami, I need to mention that he just got a MacArthur Genius Award, but I'm not, yeah. <laughs> but I, I am not a whit more impressed with him than I was before, because I always knew. Um, and um, Lucas is the international coordinator of the International Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is a century-old Reconciliation and Peace Building Organization, which was created in response to the horrors of war in the early 20th century, founded in 1914. And I do like to say, as we ponder how terrible 2017 is, 2017 has nothing on 1917 in terms of war, refugee crisis. Uh, any of the, you know, political uh, tyranny. Um, but this was formed in 1914, and uh, it is still in 48 countries. And what I think is interesting about the two of them 
um, there are many interesting things about the two of them, but, um, but uh, the two of them together is that Lucas is working for this international, this, this organization that be, began as global even before we started thinking of globalization. And Rami works for something that started, you know, not just in a city, but in a neighborhood. But they both are working at this fascinating nexus of local and global of our 21st century. Um, and I think they are also two humans who embody the art and the practice of nonviolence um, in the way the civil rights pioneers embodied that as the presence of nonviolence, right? Not a withholding of violence, but a way of being present. And that is actually how I met Lucas in the first place through Vincent Harding, one of our great elders who I was so fortunate to interview before he died. And, and he said to me, Lucas, is, Lucas embodies this for this coming generation. So I want to start by hearing um, from each of you. Why don't we just start with you, Lucas? Um, something in the spiritual background of your life. And you were also um, ordained. What, what tradition are you ordained in? I'm an American Baptist. Okay. So, um, he's also a rev. Um, something in the spiritual background of your life that is really present for you now, present in the sense of nourishing, troubling, motivating, any or all of those things. Um, you know, so uh, in a conversation at lunch, I was thinking about, uh, I was reminded of my grandmother, who in many, way, in many ways, well, I mean, she is the, the, the matriarch of my family. She had eight children, and um, I'm closer to my, some of, to my cousins than some people are to their siblings, right? Like, so we just kind of grew up in this way. And I always thought that, um, you know, a lot of times people have to have this corrective uh, process when they think of, of, of God and then when they think of God in, this, in these very masculine terms. But for me, God must be a lot like my grandmother. Uh, and she has always been uh, such a, a strong and determined uh, presence. The way that she has dealt with the difficulties growing up in the segregated South and, and the way that she's mediated uh, the, the, the kind of conflicts of her surroundings in and, and the, just the simplest of ways as she goes about her day-to-day -day life, it's always an inspiration for, for me. And so she's, she's really a, a, a great spiritual example to me. Mm -hmm. Rami, what about you in the spiritual background of your life? You're, you, are, you are a spiritual leader um, without a formal ordination, no. which would be different in Islam anyway. Right, right. Um, I just want to you know, mention for people that you, you, did, you grew up in a diplomatic family, not religious, secular, and came to Islam and to a love of the core of Islam as an adult. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, something in the spiritual background of your life, and that could be your childhood or your, your vocation that you have now. Sure. Um, yeah, so you know, I think a part of my family, my father, my late father was a diplomat, but I didn't, and then my stepfather had a different story, but um, part of my family, uh, my father's family, is deeply rooted in the city of Jerusalem. My mother came as a refugee to the south side of Chicago. Her father 
came you know, in 1952. And so space and place has always been a, um, something I think about. There's a, there's a prophetic um, uh, invocation uh, that I think about a lot in the context of spiritual tradition for me that's one of the more oft-repeated invocations attributed to the Prophet Muhammad where he calls on God as the turner of hearts. Ya muqallib al-qalub. This idea that the heart, the spiritual heart, is in constant flux and turbulence. And then the, the latter part of the dua is thabbit qalbi ala make my heart rooted, firmly rooted in your way. And I think about this idea of trying to be spiritually rooted in turbulent spaces mm-hmm. and places. And um, you know, I feel that in a place like Jerusalem, which is a very deep part of my family's history. My father's family goes very deep there. I feel that in a place like the south side of Chicago, the turbulence, uh, spiritual discovery amid intense political, cultural, uh, social turbulence. Um, yeah, I think I, I kind of lean into that um, and, and uh, sometimes with great angst and pain, but in uh, other times with you know, these profound moments of comfort and discovery. You know, something that has been on my mind, was really on my mind as I started delving back into the two of you, um, and I don't know if this is the right place to start, but here we are, um, is that each of you, uh, you know, thinking about elders and teachers and the, and the lineage, for, for both of you, uh, Lucas, you as a Christian, and, and Rami, you as a Muslim, both uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X are really important teachers. You both, you both look to both of them a lot. And I see that happening. I see both of their voices rising up. Um, and yet I think in their lifetimes they were seen as, you know, different places, right? They were seen, I don't know if you, as if, you would, if they were contrasting figures, but they were separate paths. And I feel like you, for the two of you, this is also part of this wholeness that, that, that your generation is claiming. They were also both assassinated, right? Something, and I feel like King gets quoted at me every 10 minutes right now, right? Like, right, every, and that is so fascinating and we forget that in his lifetime, and Rami, you talk a lot about when he came to Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, he was not everybody's hero, right? And so there's something beautiful about this and interesting about how their voices, their lives, their teachings transcend the way they died, even the way they were held in this culture in their lifetime. I don't know, I just wonder if you would talk about that a little bit, about what the two of them mean to you and the two of them together. Lucas. (laughs) (laughs) The Um, Baptist preacher should start. (laughs) (laughs) I feel wrong starting that. that Really, Rami? All right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, Where do I begin? Um, you know, uh, 
one of the benefits of, of learning from, from Vincent Harding um, and, and, and the other elders of the movement that he introduced and, uh, and brought into my life uh, was that I got, a, I got a chance to understand the complexity of, of brothers Martin and Malcolm um, from people who knew them. And I got a chance to appreciate the extent to which um, they wrestled. Um, and I think that um, we, we tend to look at people, uh, we tend to look at those two in these kind of stagnant ways and these kind of sort of unnuanced ways that don't do their lives and their, uh, and their struggles and wrestling uh, justice. And, uh, I think I'm, I'm really grateful to have learned a little bit more about them and, and, the, and, 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 and their, their journeys. I think, um, you know, this is the 50th year of, of, yeah. of uh, um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination and uh, the anniversary. And, and I think about, um, you know, the fact that when he died, he had, he had just... Uh, in 67, he had famously come out uh, in opposition to the Vietnam War. And I think about the fact that, you know, he delivered that speech on April 4th, right? It was a year to the, to the day that he was killed. Um, I think about, you know, Operation Breadbasket that, that was trying to happen in Chicago. He was moving in this direction where he was trying to deal with these, with these structural issues of violence in our country. You know, the, the, the edifice which produces beggars, he, he, he said, in, both in, in his speech, uh, uh, Beyond Vietnam. And yeah, also that you need to speech. be a good Samaritan, yeah, but you also yeah. need to ask. Transform the Jericho Road so right. that men and women aren't constantly beaten and robbed as they make their way along life's journey. To, to change the edifice that produces beggars yeah. is what he called us to. And I think that, you know, it's interesting because I think that, that Brother Malcolm in some ways was was very much also engaged in that edifice-changing work. You know, he was traveling to the United Nations trying to get uh, other states to hold the United States accountable to its treatment of its black citizens. Yeah. And, and, and he understood that there was, a, there was a structural thing that needed to be dealt with. And so both were, both, both were committed to the, this work of personal transformation, but they also knew that there was this structural change at work that that was necessary, and I, I yeah, they've mm -hmm. both been profoundly important to my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and we were talking earlier when we ran into each other about some of the stuff that I've been thinking about recently. I mean, both, the legacy of both continue to really animate so much of who I am and what I'm grateful for and the edifice upon which we do all our work. and. Um, has been a non-stop engagement. I mean, um, the legacy of the Nation of Islam, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm, um, you know, that's Imam Jamil Alameen, SNCC, and all of that woke me up as a, as a kid. I mean, kind of really, uh, it, it's what thrust me into an awareness of who I was as a, as a child of Palestinian refugees, connected my struggle, the black struggle, connected my struggle to brown struggle connecting me to the world in ways that were just both um just overwhelming but just also very empowering and very liberating um 
And I was, yeah, and, and particularly in those younger years, uh, fueled by the fire, you know, and, and couldn't get enough of it and looked for it and was, you know, and I think um, at that point, quite frankly, Martin Luther King wasn't relevant to me. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't have a way to connect uh, to that legacy uh, as much. I mean, I, as, a, as a Muslim, I saw the, the transcendent global connectivity that was just awe-inspiring for me that came out of the movement mm -hmm. uh, that helped to incubate Malcolm. Um, and that, which, which he was so motivated, animated by at the end of his life, absolutely. that global. The global peace, the ability to kind of see struggles in others, the, the ways in which I think that still, till today, are really underappreciated about the larger Muslim tradition in the United States, you know, long before intersectionality was a sexy word. I mean, there was a, a real profound way of connectivity. I mean, uh, and I just think also, just to say it, like for people who don't know this, and this is very simplified, but, but the, it, the Muslim experience and faith as a lens through into the human, the larger human condition. Right, right? absolutely. And, and, and part of it was, again, a absolute refutation of the dehumanizing lens of white supremacy, uh, colonial a debasement of human beings, which, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to overlook now. But, you know, the, the, the entire subjugation that a, uh, we continue to deal with in terms of just colonial legacy of people who are subjected to that regime and what it meant to, to, to live their lives as full human beings. Uh, and, you know, Malcolm and that legacy was kind of a portal through which, um, you know, it, in many ways it began to symbolize the utter defiance of, no, we are human beings and we are full human beings. We are spiritually connected to a global history. And uh, that was powerful. But I think what, what I've, as I evolved in the work, um, and, you know, I, I, my mother, when she came to Southside Chicago, you know, eventually ended up in Marquette Park where I bought my first house and lived and organized and Iman was working in multiple places across the South Side, but Marquette Park was the location that King actually chose in 1966 to come to Chicago. Both the legacy of King and then another kind of dimension of Malcolm for me began to intersect in a very powerful way. Uh, a part of Malcolm that till today I think people again don't really appreciate the the person who was constantly struggling, constantly evolving, the very human Malcolm, you know, the, the, you know we are close to his, his daughters and, and Ilyasa is one of them. And when Ilyasa comes to our event and smiles, you see the smile of Malcolm. It was, it's not, you know, Malcolm's often made out to be this mad militant. And, you know, this was a person who had an extraordinary humor, had an extraordinary humanity, and was, again, constantly evolving um, mm -hmm. taking extraordinary risks in his own spiritual uh, exploration. And that is part of the King legacy that I find the most fascinating that, again, I think we don't hear about. I just finished uh, Where Do We Go From Here, which was that last book he wrote. And again, like, like Beyond Vietnam, it is filled with a king who is wrestling with his own legacy and how it was being uh, captured even in 1967. I mean, King was probably I have a dream before he died. And he was saying, listen, you know, what I found powerful is like, look, he didn't, he said, I don't mean to in any way, shape or form uh, uh, not value the extraordinary sacrifice that white folks have made to come to the South and stand with us uh, when they saw uh, the, the viciousness of white supremacy. But he made a really interesting agitational, you know, a claim at that moment. He said, at that moment, 
all we were doing was quite frankly asking white folks for civility. We weren't really asking for much. Now we're asking for something that, and, and what we're asking for now, we begin, to, it's, it's a harder sacrifice and we don't hear as many people coming out into the streets, we're asking for equity. And that's what King was talking about. You know, he's talking about, you know, basically a living wage. He was talking about, you know, a fundamental radical restructuring of the economic system in the United States about basic equity. Um, and he was, but, but I also found fascinating, one of the moments in that book that I find fascinating is, we talked about it earlier, was a, a chapter called Black Power. Mm -hmm. And it's King talking about his walk with Stoli, Stoli Carmichael, and which was, he claims in that book, the first time that term is used in a big popular setting was that one moment. And the negotiation, it's King saying, I don't subscribe completely to you know, the, the totality of what black power is expressing. But in this entire chapter, he spends a lot of time trying to explain the urgency of black power to the, to the liberal white reader. And I, again, I found it a moment that uh, both, in, for me, it's King wrestling, right? It's wrestling with, here's why I see the urgency of black power and what it's calling for. But here's why I still, and there's one thing that struck me, he still said, if I am still the last person on earth that's going to be calling, no matter how unpopular it is, for basic human reconciliation, that's what my convictions tell me I have to stand for. And I felt it was a really strong answer and response to, I acknowledge all of the claims of black power. I feel it. I see it. I've experienced it but I'm still calling us to something greater mm. as a nation, mm. as a people, and a world. And that resonates really profoundly mm. with me. Mm. You wanted to say something? Well, um, yeah. I, I, so I agree with, I think everything that Rami just said was, yeah, resonates with me. I think, I think one thing, though, that, that, that I want to speak to and, and, and also give you a chance to name is the fact that one of the, I think it's a, people try to, when they talk about Malcolm X, they try to talk about, they, they sort of use this simplistic framing where Malcolm before he went to Mecca was good, I mean was bad, Malcolm after he went to Mecca was good, yeah. right. right? And right. and I think that when we talk about, you know, particularly within the context of black power, yeah. um, I think that what people don't seem to understand, they don't understand where, the, 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 the message of, of the Nation of Islam with respect to, to, to identity, they, they don't understand the roots of that message and its appeal, the reorientation of, of, of the psyche of, of black Americans growing up in a context where, where everything around them tried to paint a picture of our inferiority. And, you know, I think of, I mean, you know, Malcolm's father was a Garveyite, was, you know, learned from, from Marcus Garvey. And, you know, Mark, Marcus Garvey at one point famously said that Europeans have described God in their own image for centuries now. It's time we do the same. And, and so I think that what, was, what, was, what people have to understand when they're evaluating this period of Malcolm's life, they have to understand the context in, in which he's you know, responding uh, to, to an intense dehumanization. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I feel like it, it's important to kind of not set up these dichotomies about his existence, right? Mm -hmm. 
And I just wanted to to speak to that, particularly within the context of kings wrestling with black power. Yeah, no, and I I think it's, you know, especially in the Muslim community, I think there are these ways in which, um, again, erasure of the extraordinary continuity of struggle. I mean, uh, Malcolm's post and uh, pre-Meccan Hajj certainly was transformative, but he came back as vociferously advocating for black uh, struggle, you know, struggle and liberation. And in fact, in many ways, uh, there's this profound letter that Malcolm is writing a week before his assassination that I, you know, uh, yeah, I found in one of his, you know, sets of speeches, not as well known, where he's in fact in conversation with a group of immigrant Muslims who um, were questioning Malcolm. They were saying, you know, we, we, we thought you made the Hajj. Right? We thought you adopted all this universality and you're coming back and we're still hearing this black liberation stuff, this black nationalist stuff. And Malcolm, you know, this is in fact writing this letter the night his house was firebombed. And, you know, he's, he's responding by first saying, well, you know, nowhere, he says, yes, I've embraced and, and, and celebrate the total universality of, of Islam as, as this human spiritual tradition, but nowhere in there have I read that I forget I'm black and that I forget that I come from Harlem. And then he goes on to make this extraordinary analogy. He said, listen, let me tell you something. If two farmers were given two choices of land, one extraordinarily arid, dry, brittle, and the other fertile, teeming with life, and one decided to plant his seed in the you know, barren land, he'd be considered a fool. He said, um, and he says essentially, Harlem is that fertile, uh, teeming with life land. And he said, but your brethren, he was talking to the immigrants, who are coming to the United States right now, are running to, into the arms, and this is at the time of initial white flight out of urban centers, and trying to plant your seeds of identity and Muslim you know, infrastructure in dry, brittle land, right? So instead of lecturing me, essentially, Malcolm's <laughs> saying, right, about an understanding of Islam, I would talk to your brothers, right, who are going to continue to run into the arms of people who will reject them and never accept them while the the places in Harlem are ready to lay out the red carpet. So I think Malcolm was, in fact, constantly taking issue with that. Um, For me, too, uh, and I'll say this about one last thing about I think the dichotomy of the Malcolm Martin thing has been, you know, from Spike's Malcolm Martin, you know, from (laughs) Do the Right Thing. I I think it's been with us for a long time, and we know there's a, you know, a wide array of voices. One that gets left out of the the equation oftentimes is one that had a profound impact on a lot of us is the the son of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, uh, Imam Wartin Muhammad, Mm -hmm. who in many ways, you know, lives much longer. No one knows about. No one knows about, but in many ways has even a much more significant impact on the larger uh, uh, landscape of American Muslim Islam. Uh, and in fact is, you know, the one who, if, if there's anyone who begins to genuinely reconcile the spiritual tradition of Islam with a black experience that is still unapologetically rooted in its own experience and forms a national community and begins to make the extraordinary international connections, it is Imam Wartin Muhammad. And, and, and has he, nothing to do with Louis Farrakhan, who gets all... 
right? Who everybody knows, right? Right. It's I mean, the, he's the opposite kind of figure. Well, yeah. I mean, they took uh, Imam Muhammad. If you go to the that nineteen that critical nineteen seventy five moment in the history of the nation when the Honorable Elijah Muhammad dies, it's Imam Muhammad that first takes who was the son who who takes the stadium and now you know takes the podium. And he was a man who was kicked out of the nation of Islam multiple times for taking issues with his father. He was a man who went to prison for not going to Vietnam, but he was also a man who constantly stood on principle. And Malcolm talks about him in his autobiography. Mm -hmm. And he's a person, you know, who had a profound influence on me. He's a person who had a profound influence on Iman. And yeah, he, he always took exception to some of the more uh, choreographed ways in which the minister presented the mm -hmm. nation of Islam. I mean, Imam Muhammad was also a very modest, rooted, you know, person who who saw the Muslim tradition as an expression of humility about connecting right. to the divine. Right, and the practice yeah. of Islam. Right. As, so obviously, we could talk about this for a few hours. But like, but what I I think what I what we see, which I think is just so f exciting, is that you in a new generation, I mean, that their evolution as our teachers is ongoing. And it's working its way through a project on the south side of Chicago. I think their conversation with each other, right, is being continued. So we've just, I mean, I feel like we witnessed this and it's, can't wait to see where it goes. Um, I, I want to talk to the two of you about, we talked a lot about words this morning, about poetry. I want to talk about language that we need, and I think people in this room, by and large, love, but which also has become problematic and simplified, words like peace and justice. Um, again, you know, I feel like, Rami, like what you're doing with Iman, um, you're so careful to use, you know, to use different language and to bring, to, to look at things as a whole. To not to be doing justice separate from corner stores and whether people are hearing great music. And, um, you know, like you talk about corner stores as places of hope and possibility and the work you have with the formerly incarcerated, you call them returning citizens. And it's not just language you use, it's, it's a different way to treat the project of healing the inner city. And it's not problem focused, it's wellness focused, it's wholeness focused. Um, I don't know, that's, and that, you know what I'm saying? It feels, I feel like so much when we talk about justice, even the greatest justice efforts can actually not touch that sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, for us, I think we, we also start with a lot of the, I think community organizing language has, has really informed a lot of the way I think, I think about my own spiritual tradition and the work. And um, I, I, I've kind of developed a course about community organizing as a spiritual practice, because I think there was a lot in this idea of beginning with the notion that, you know, we all have a stake in this and that we're not, you know, the returning citizens, the, the brothers on the corners, the young, I mean, we, we, we have to see ourselves as collectively invested in uh, the issues that we're dealing with and that they're in fact not holistic because it's easier to throw out a paradigm out there that says it's holistic, but if you don't begin to understand 
the connectivity between you know the the migrant the low uh, the the immigrant uh, refugee who's coming to the inner city and opening up a corner store and then contributing to a lot of the dynamics in the inner city neighborhood with the 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 challenges that made that neighborhood what it was then you're just not looking at the whole picture and i you know i think from the justice standpoint you know, one of the, 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 the things that we think about a lot in the context of language is this idea of calling out and calling up. Um, you know, what does it mean to very honestly, uh, unapologetically begin to call out the systemic structural forms of violence that we have been imposed upon us and that we have internalized, perpetuated, imposed on one another? And how do we just, how do we honestly find the spaces to address that? But also then how do we find moments that authentically call up an aspirational kind of ideal of what the world could look like uh, in our work? And I, for us, doing that at granular spaces like the corner store, um, make it real. Make it, I think, a little more relevant than maybe uh, and we all need that, and we all need, yeah. I think, to and be. And you live in, in the spaces. neighborhood too. We've been there for. Yeah, it's not uh, a for place you years. visit. You're, yeah. you're you're part of the community. It's yeah. your corner store. Yeah. I mean, Lucas, I feel, um, and I think you and I have talked about this before: nonviolence, even peace. What is? I was one of your. One of your mentors across time and space is AJ Must, who founded I Four. And he talked about a revolutionary pacifism, and you know I think those words just don't land now. But but what he what you said what that meant was not about neutrality while surrounded by injustice, but about finding the courage to respond in love. But you I mean you've even talked sometimes you will refer to what we call the civil rights movement. I even think you want us to refresh that our imagination about that language. Right. I mean, that, that comes from, from Vincent Harding. He, he would always take issue with people referring to the civil rights movement as such and, and find that that was a rather lazy description uh, for what, you know, many of, uh, for what he and many of, of, uh, of his peers risked their lives for. Uh, he, he would prefer to talk about, either use the expression of uh, the black-led freedom struggle or uh, sometimes the Southern freedom struggle or, or the Southern freedom movement. Um, uh, but he would want us to to reframe that. But but yeah, I mean, I I, I find that um, there's a lot of our language. I mean, the language of nonviolence becomes, I think, very problematic uh, today in in communities that are, um, you know, I, I think these days a lot of people relate to the language of nonviolence as a as a way as another way of telling them how they need to respond to the to their oppression. Right. And to the difficulty right. in, in, in their midst. And, and I think that, that that does revolutionary pacifism a disservice, right? It does a disservice to the, the nonviolence that King represented and that the, the black you know, freedom struggle embodied in, in, that, in that moment because it, it, was, it, was, it was far more than, than, than just telling you know, oppressed people that they need to temper their tone or or address the way that they're speaking uh, or calling out the injustices that they're surrounded by. Yeah, and I think this question of, we live in this moment of uh, where fear is rampant and anger 
is rampant on many sides. Um, and, and a lot of it is justified, right? I mean, you can't argue with, you can, you can argue, obviously, we could all argue with some of it and not argue with others, but I think, how do you, how do the two of you think about this tension, which I think you take on as a creative tension of nonviolence, this robust thing, and the righteousness of, of anger and grief, like how how would this tradition in its depths that you know how does it meet this human quandary this complexity i i think about um the moment when uh, you know i when the the when mike brown's uh, father was or his stepfather when they, when, when the verdict came uh, that uh, of, of the acquittal of the officer that that um, that killed his son. I, I think about. I think that if I, I remember this correctly, he screamed, "You know, burn it down!" And I think about the criticism that he received, and I think about the fact that to me, if it were my son, you, you know, I I think. Uh, the destruction of property seems to me like a far more human response than, than to sit on the sidelines and tell people to be peaceful and, and use nonviolence. And, and what I'm speaking to is not that I think that that's a good thing, but I'm trying to speak to, to this fact that I don't feel like we wrestle enough um, with, with, with the real grief and anger that, 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 that is is natural to feel in the face of such injustice. Mm -hmm. Now, I think on the other side, the tension for me is, is accepting this fact that, frankly, you know, when I think about the generations of, of dehumanization and, 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 and suffering um, that, that my people have endured, I recognize that there is no justice that I will see. I mean, how can there be justice for what's happened? Right? In, in the sense that we, we, we tend to look for it. Um, and so that's where my spiritual you know, uh, practice comes in, where I have to, I have to find another way of, 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 of accepting and, and dealing with that grief. Um, you know, one of the biggest, I think, challenges with King's notion of nonviolence is this idea that unmerited suffering can be redemptive. And I think that's a very, very difficult thing. I think you've said that in, in your work with International Fellowship of Reconciliation, that's something that people struggle with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, and I think that our spiritual traditions give us resources for, for dealing with that. Um, but but it's, it's a hard thing to wrestle with. It's a hard thing to accept uh, and, and to believe. And I feel like that is, that's a part of the tension of... of of the spiritual discipline of nonviolence. Um, but I feel like it's far too often neglected and people don't really live with that tension, um, and which means that they're not really confronting the anger, which means that they're not really taking themselves to that empathic experience of other people's pain. Mm. Mm. I think what, you know, when you're, when you're laying it out, I, I, again, going back to King and Marquette Park, um, what was extraordinarily mm. powerful about that moment is, you know, there's, 
5,000 counter-protesters at that time, August 5th, 1966, 700 marchers. Um, this is a year after Selma. He would go on to say he'd never seen as much hatred and hostility anywhere in the South. He's getting hit by rocks, bottles. They were throwing, uh, marchers would later on go say they were throwing bags of feces, um, epithets, of course, hurling them. And asked if he resented, you know, of course he was being framed as the marchers were as um, they knew what they were going to get in Market Park, right? They knew that they're stirring up. Um, and asked if he regretted it, he of course would go on to say that absolutely not. You know, we had to bring evil out into the light of day. And I think the evil of that type of violence, right? I think about the, um, you know, that revolutionary pacifism, if you will, is in many ways unearthing for us the extraordinarily, brut the brutality of some of the structural systemic violence that exists. And um, it's sometimes it's not as visual as a marcher getting hit by a rock, uh, but nonetheless, that is, is as incapacitating and crippling. Um, and, I, and I also think about that kind of spiritual tension between justice. Um, and in our tradition, it's a justice and mercy. Right, right? which and, is such a good word. We need to use that word more. Um, and, and you know, we're taught that you never pray for justice. Never pray for justice because as much as you want justice, you pray for mercy, you know? And in other words, you never pray for God to be just with you because you recognize that, you know, we all got issues. <laughs> you know, all of our communities have issues. And when you start on, 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 disentangling the layers of oppression, right, that we begin to find that we are oppressors of one another. We are oppressors of ourselves. In fact, there are many verses in the Quranic text that say, you know, I did not oppress them. In fact, they oppressed their own selves. They oppressed their own souls. And I think about that spiritual notion up against those moments, though, you were, what you were saying about living those moments. I, we were talking about, I just came from Jerusalem. And, um, you know, there's, there was a moment I was there for that spiritual experience, but there's, there's a moment I did not go looking. I, you know, this is a week after the Trump announcement and, uh, of Jerusalem, and I'm coming out of Aqsa uh, right outside of the compound, the, the sacred compound. There's a historic African-Palestinian community, and some of them know me. They said, Rami, you got to come to dinner with us tonight. And I'm going in there, and um, their son, it's, you know, it's a very modest household of around eight, nine people living in a small square room. And immediately with probably 30 minutes into their dinner, the Israeli soldiers kind of raid the compound and their son is grabbed along with five other kids. The youngest is 10 years old. And now I'm following a father who gets up and runs. And of course I'm running with him into the dark old city streets of Jerusalem uh, after two, two, three, four now soldiers that are mounting, that are grabbing these kids, the youngest 10 now that's shackled at the legs and arms and they're dragging. And all of a sudden we get close enough where the soldiers stop and other young Palestinian kids kind of emerge. And there was this moment where I'm with the father, Adam, his son is held right there. The young, the mother is screaming her head off uh, that, that the 10 year old kid is also asthmatic and she's trying to plead with the soldiers. And I have now a mounting group of 20 soldiers that are, and I was just, you know, I was there. And then it's in those moments where 
conversations about justice and mercy, <laughs> you know, it's, it, you know it, it's rubber meet the road kind of moment. And it's, um, yeah, it's how do you still look at the, the soldier? And there was one moment I looked at the soldier. I looked at one of them. And I knew it was fear in his eyes. Yeah, they're kids mostly. Because the, the soldiers are 18, 19-year-old Israeli kids looking at a group of young Palestinian kids who have been brought up in, in occupation who no longer fear them, right? And the irrationality of a guy armed with the Uzi submachine gun looking at two, you know, eight and nine, 10, 11 year olds as potential threats um, and being in that moment, um, I could strangely enough identify with the impossible position that that soldier was in, even while and I think it's because I've had an extraordinary privilege. I don't think I would have as a young 10-year-old Palestinian kid, mm -hmm. but I think part of the work that's shaped me over the last you know, several decades in Chicago have given me a type of privilege to think about mercy and justice in a way that um, maybe others you know, that, that are living the raw brutality of oppression every single day don't have. Um, yeah, so that actually gets... It points out a question that I don't even know how to ask, but like Jerusalem is a perfect example of this. Of, and also that practicing seeing the fear in the other eyes is also what the civil rights, this is what they did, right? They did that spiritual discipline of being able to see um, even somebody who was beating them as... You know, what was it? John Lewis said they, would, they were taught to imagine this was once a little baby, like somebody's baby. And what happened? What happened from that moment to this? But this dynamic, and of course it's extremely intense in Jerusalem and in many places in the world where you work, Lucas, but it's here now too that there's all this fear all around. And it's like, our different fears are pitted against each other. And I, I wonder, and, 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 and these different kinds of fear from living in different parts of the country, right? What's happening with the economy? Um, what's happening with them? You know, we can talk about all these layers, immigration policy. Uh, I wonder what wisdom you have about like the spiritual discipline of you know, being a citizen in this moment. And I think part of it is that those of us who do have the privilege to be standing on the solid ground, to not be immediately endangered, like what is the responsibility for us in, in a moment like this where so many people really feel endangered and the perception of being endangered is as powerful in our brains as the actual. So, so we have to take that seriously. Where do you go with that? So I'm not sure if I have wisdom at the end of this story, but I'm something about that description reminded me of one of my earliest times um, being uh, racially profiled or stopped by the police. And I was, um, well, actually, it's not one of my earliest times. It's a bit, this is maybe three times in. Um, I, was a, I was a sophomore in college, and I went to school at a predominantly white uh, private school and um uh and i was walking i you know i 
I was walking around talking. I was in the Baptist Student Union at the time, and I was walking with a, uh, a, young, a, a young white woman who was also in the BSU, and we were walking around campus, and we were talking about probably Jesus. And <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was late at night, and... Uh, you know, late night Jesus conversation. Late night Jesus. I mean, it's what you did. It's what you did. You know, and uh, we're having this conversation and um, walking around campus, and all of a sudden, a, a, a police car pulls up, and 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 the lights are shining, and and the officer gets out of the car, and he, and he shines a flashlight in, in my eye. And I don't know if you, any of you any of you have ever had that experience, but you can't see anything, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a very, it's already like just a very uh, disorienting experience because if they're shining that light in your eye, you can't, it's like you can't even see the other, you just hear the voices. And so the officer says, ma'am, are you okay? And uh, my friend says, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm fine. We're just walking around, you know, talking. And talking about like, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the officer says, are you sure? And, and, uh, and she says, yeah, we're fine. And then, and then they look at me and say, are, well, I'm assuming they're looking at me at this point. Uh, since I can't see still, they say, uh, uh, are you a student here? And I say, uh, yes, I am. And then I, I did, I, I played a trick that I learned to do as a kid because I, at the time I was on student government and so I had met some of the police officers at the, uh, in the campus and so I start to call names. I start to say, officer such and such, is that you? Uh, and you know, the flashlight begins to lower and uh, I think I have to show my, my campus ID and then they, then they go away. The real difficulty of that moment was the next day when I tried to tell some of my friends who were white about that experience. And I, I'm, try, I'm, I'm recounting it. I remember like just shaking as I'm, as I'm talking about it. And my friends say, yeah, but come on. I mean, if someone was going to be on campus that didn't belong, they would probably be black. <laughs> right? These were my friends, right? So I thought. And I knew that in that moment, um, it, because I, I, I believe they cared about me, right? I, I believe they cared about me. And I believe that in order to say that to me, they had to suppress something within them uh, using the most ridiculous logic, right? Um, you know, the biggest threats to my my my. The, the, I want to say my girlfriend, she wasn't my girlfriend, but the, mm-hmm. my friend who was a girl, uh, the biggest threats to her, to her safety were not coming from outside the campus, right? I mean, the, the, the whole apparatus of, of this notion of their security, like, so my, my friend was essentially willing that I would suffer to give him a, a, a sense of security that was rooted in a lie. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I think one of, the, one of the things that I've learned from that that has helped me humanize people across this division, this, this experiential division in our, in our world, is to understand the extent to which we, we all kind of take, we all end up believing in a deception. And it's this lie that stands in the way and it, it, to us forming a genuine relationship. I mean, needless to say, 
those friendships were severed at that moment, right? Mm -hmm. Because how can I, how can we be friends when I know that you would be comfortable with my dehumanization, right? But in order for us to find our way back, we had to continue to, to talk, to deconstruct the lie. I couldn't do it immediately. It took maybe a year <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, for us to be able to have that conversation. Um, but in time, we, we could, and I'm grateful for that. Um, so I don't know if there's any wisdom to be learned from that, but I, but I, but I think it's, it's a challenge, something that I wrestle with, you know, in each situation that I'm confronted with. Like, how do I, how do I, because the fear doesn't show up in the same way, right? And, and, right. and, it, it, and it often doesn't show up as fear, right? It doesn't, well, it doesn't present as itself exactly. as fear. It exactly. presents itself as anger. Yeah. So you have to... One is you have to be in the place where you can, you can see. And sometimes we're not. I think we have to admit that with ourselves. Sometimes we're not in that space. And it, and it takes sometimes a privilege, a, 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 a distance, and it takes a certain set of ingredients sometimes for us to arrive at the place where we can see that fear. But it's also something that we can practice. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I try to do. Not always. Uh, I'm not always good at it, but I try. So. Something that I think is really helpful, practical there is, um, you know, these moments, variations on this moment, I think if, you know, if I think about my life, they happen and you feel terrible about them. And like, I wonder how he felt if he thought about it later the next day. But to actually not let it go, to allow yourself space and time, but to come back to it. Which you did, I mean, but you said it took a year. I mean, probably. I mean, I wasn't really counting. I'm just thinking, you know, when your college years go by quickly. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I had, to, I, had to, I had to wait. And we had to sort of have different types of conversations that, uh, that weren't about that moment, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. In order for us to come back to some semblance of a relationship. Mm -hmm. But it also helped that we were on the same campus. We would keep yeah. seeing each other over and yeah. over again. So yeah. it wasn't as easy for us to retreat to our silos and avoid each other. Yeah. Well, that's, a, you know, I think, I think I like the, the idea that you were just talking about, this idea of experiential divides. And when you think about what you just said, you were on the same campus. I think Brian Stevenson was once asked, hey, what, what's, what's part of the solution? And, and he, he said, look, there's, he talked about what I, what I heard as the power in proximity, right? That, that try to continue to agitate yourself to be proximate to the pain, right? I, you know, I, last summer, I, I leave my house real quickly on an errand to go fill my wife's van up with gas, and I'm, I'm running, and she's running, and, and, I'm, and I go to the gas station, the closest one, and there's a, two young black kids, probably 13, 14. One has his shirt off, and two cars are there, two cop cars are there. So I'm filling my gas, I'm looking at this. I'm like, okay. And then another cop car shows up. Then three, four more come up. Then a white shirt comes up and I say, oh man. So I just like, I say, you know, I can't sit there filling my gas. So I go walk up and I'm just sitting there looking at them. And, and I'm talking to these young brothers. I'm like, what, what the hell's going on? He's like, you know, you know, they said we were walking here, blah, blah. Again, 
No, the kid has, he's in shorts, it's the summer, he has no shirt. You can see what he has on. The other kid is sitting there watching this. And there's like, you know, 15, 17 cops coming around. And finally one, one cop comes by me and says, you know, what's, what's the problem? I said, are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, right. you know, we're in Chicago. Right. We're in the district that Laquan got shot. I'm going to sit and watch to make sure this doesn't have to unnecessarily escalate, officer. I don't see a threat here, right? Um, but the fact that we can, you know, cars could just zoom by that and normalize that type of tension and experience. I think, you know, I've experienced in a much lighter version of being thrown on a cop car, being put in, arrested for disorderly conduct in the 8th District a while ago. And, and what it meant, the extraordinary dehumanizing and enraging experience you have when officers are directly lying about their encounter uh, that they had with you in a court of law and then being found guilty. Um, and I was thinking also, you know, I was thinking about that experience that same night when the Israelis grabbed my friend's son, and this is inside the old city. After a while, you know, he, the, 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 the father talked down the kids, got the kids to leave, and, and just told the mother, it's okay, the one whose son was asthmatic, will just go to the jail, he'll probably be out shortly. So we all then went, this is right in front of the Jaffa Gate, Bab al-Khadir in Arabic. And if you've been to Jerusalem, you know, this is probably one of the most uh, uh, kind of popular entrances for most Jewish Americans and tourists going through the Jaffa Gate in front of the city of David. Right in the corner there is this small little prison. So I'm sitting there with this group of Palestinians and it's like, a, it's I think the night, of, so you know, it's after Shabbat or it's after the Saturday services and so now, you know, families are pouring in and I'm hearing a lot of American accents and families just pouring in and and, I, and we're sitting there and it was this, this really surreal, disorienting, you know, experiential divide in the same space. You know, people are enjoying Jerusalem, they're loving it, they're having this spiritual experience and we're sitting all night in front of this prison waiting for a 10-year-old and 11-year-old and 13-year-old to come out, which they never do. He ends up spending a week in prison for no charges and then gets put on house arrest for another week. And I'm trying to give coffee and sweets to the family, trying to calm them down because I, I, I didn't know what else I could do. Um, you know, I felt really useless in that role. But, but I do think in those moments, Krista, with I think your original mm -hmm. question in my mind, mm -hmm. I, I'm hearing about the, the reality of the experience. How do, you, how do you put yourself more proximate, proximity to the pain? And I think on the flip side, how do those of us who have proximity to the pain don't get jaded? And and, yeah. and 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 succumb to despair mm -hmm. and cynicism about the possibility of reconciliation. And again, I think there are spiritual techniques and tools for me, again, in the Muslim tradition anyway, despair is just so antithetical. Uh, in fact, the word despair, balesa, uh, is the root word of to despair. And it's, it's etymologically directly connected to the word iblis, which is Satan. Um, so the idea of darkness and despair and succumbing to the inability to constantly see. And, and again, uh, Muslim tradition is filled with stories 
that you have to present to Muslims, even in the context of something that seems as intractable as the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, of people who were at each other's necks during the time of the Prophet Muhammad, people who killed his family members, people who uh, slaughtered innocents, but found a way to reconcile mm. as brothers and sisters. Uh, and so it might occasionally sound Pollyannish in terms of where you're coming from, but it's, it's an, it's an a integral part of the tradition. Reconciliation is a part of the tradition. And if you're sincere and genuine about it, it's, you, you have to strive towards it still and, um, and not despair that you have gotten to a point where it's impossible. But, um, but I do think Dietrich Bonhoeffer's notion of false grace, right? The idea of those who, you know, preach forgiveness without demanding repentance um, and that they're, the idea of toba, repenting, turning back, Mm-hmm. must entail a reconciliation with our inequities and mm-hmm. our injustices mm-hmm. and our issues. Um, and I think we do that individually and collectively. Um, we're going to go a couple minutes over because this is too important. Um, I want to talk about, I want to end talking about love. Um, actually, I... I recently was reading um, King's speech in 1967 at the Southern, uh, maybe, anyway, 1967 speech, uh, where he said, darkness cannot put out darkness, only light can do that. And I say to you, I have also decided to stick to love. For I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems, and I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I know it isn't popular to talk about it in some circles today, nor today. And then he says, I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love, and I have seen too much hate I've seen too much hate on the faces of sheriffs in the South. I've seen hate on the faces of too many Klansmen and too many white citizens counselors to want to hate myself because every time I see it, I know that it does something to their faces and their personalities, and I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I wanted just in the last few minutes, I feel like figuring out what strong, demanding love is in public is also our work. I feel we culturally, we have named hate in our midst, right? We've named it, we call it out, we've created legal categories around it. And that creates a paradoxical, I don't think just an opening and an invitation, but a responsibility to interrogate love in the same way. Um, If he's right, that it's the only thing big enough to drive out hate. And I think we actually all know this, right? Like I can't prove it politically or scientifically. It's true, we know it. So, but still, what is this strong demanding love? What are its qualities and how do we start to make it happen? What if the, and I feel like the two of you are living this. So, So what have you learned about this? As, as the Muslim, I feel like it's your turn to speak. Oh, it's my turn. <laughs> yeah, alhamdulillah. I'll take that, I'll take that. 
Um, I, I guess I, I would think about it in, in, in two ways and, and try to be short with it. I, you know, one, to maybe continue to with King and continue with those last words of King. Um, he, and, I, and, and I, I sent this to all our organizers because we do these organizing trainings and everyone always struggles in our organizing training, especially in spiritual communities with the word power, right? And we talk about organizers need to build unapologetic power. And, you know, you cannot conflate power with, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Why do we want power? We're spiritual people. No, you need power. Power of the ability to act, to, to get things done. And what's so brilliant in that last text is King positions one of the biggest diametric kind of uh, dichotomous misunderstandings is juxtaposing uh, love against power. And what he was saying is that our love needs to drive us to build mm -hmm. power, mm -hmm. to build the ability, the capacity to move an agenda that is predicated on a better vision of the world. So I think in part, you know, uh, that, that idea of expressing, because, you know, in that same text, he talks about, you know, love without power being, you know, Well, and the, it's like what we do culturally, like we think, we know hate is powerful. Like mm -hmm. we honor the power of hate. Right. But... We don't think of love as, we, we don't put those two things together as yeah. powerful. Although in our lives we know it's powerful. Yeah, and I think he talks about it very practically in that kind of context of really what it means to build real agendas, coalitions and alliances to sustain, you know, movements. Um, and I, and I, so I think, it, I, I think there is that. And I think our, you know, love in public is, is about, you know, are we um, invested in the issues enough uh, to do we love those who are directly affected, including ourselves, enough to make the type of sacrifices to build collective power to change those realities that are on the ground? I think that's a really important question for all of us around not just the, 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 the more, I think, easier issues to talk about, but, I'm, but some of the more complicated set of social issues that really implicate all of us on some level or the other. And I think that also then links to the other aspect for me about love, which is the spiritual more aspirational, I think harder to achieve notion of love, which again, in, in, uh, I think about a hadith, a, a prophetic saying that says, you know, be distant, right, from uh, the, the dunya, if you will, the worldly, don't be so caught up in this world. Have genuine spiritual practices that are authentically aligned with the reality and understanding that we are all gonna meet our creator and that this world is very temporary and that if you are genuinely rooted in that understanding that you will obtain the love of the divine and that if you are also, the second part of that is and be distant from just trying to keep up with the possessions of the people. In other words, if you are genuinely, if your, your existence is not simply about material, uh, you know, uh, competition with others and that if you can, what does that look like in our context of our modern reality to be able to say that to, you know, we're not in it just for a vote. We're not just in it for a particular uh, a benefit, that, that genuine commitment to people. Uh, if you are distant from simply aspiring towards the possessions of people, you will obtain the love of the people. And I think 
demonstrating when I, when I work in the, you know, we have this one saying every morning we come and we got we, these young 18 to 25 year olds and returning citizens, we all gather and it's around 35 of us. And I, we always say, look, we only want one thing from you, one thing. And they all know this right now. And they said, you know, your success in this life and your spiritual success as a person that aspires towards something greater. And, you know, the context of love, mm. it is profound to see people, we talk a lot among guys who are really been jaded by this toxic max, you know, masculinity uh, to be able to say, I love you, you know? And what's really, you know, the other day I was at the bank and one of those young brothers saw me as I was coming out, we were messing around with them and I was like, you know, going and make it rain, Rami, make it rain. We're going out and outside the bank. And then, and then this is a kid that I knew from the neighborhood for many years with nothing but kind of that just hard look. He looked, to me, you know, looked at me as I was leaving out. I said, man, I love you, man. And I looked there and said, wow, I've never heard, I never thought I heard you say that. He said, I know, man. I said. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for me, that was just like that moment that, wow, you know, and, and the guys... I walk in and like, man, we we saying I love you all the time now around here, right? I can say that, and I mean it, you know. And I and I think, um, as corny as that might sound, sometimes it is powerful to see that the force that animates work for me is 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 believed that love is genuine, that it's authentic, and it's part of what drives, uh, I think, a sense of realness in terms of connection you know, for me. So, um, I shouldn't have asked you to go first. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, uh, I'm reminded of this story. So, you know, within the Fellowship of Reconciliation, there's been this, um, you know, so you, you referenced it earlier, that the, the language of nonviolence wasn't there. So that, uh, you know, it started as this movement of conscientious objectors, of people who, who said that, you know, our faith will not allow us to kill another person. We can't participate in war. And so, you know, but they, they went on to, to try to figure out how, what that looked like. And they, they talked about love and action. And so, um, you know, when, when, you know, leaders, like early leaders of FOR, you know, went to, to India and, and met Gandhi and, and were trying to, to, to experiment with these Gandhian tactics in the, in the racial justice struggle in the United States. And so there was this debate that happened within the organization around 1946, before the, the journey of reconciliation, the first of the freedom rides. And the debate was whether or not by using these tactics, by, by taking an integrated bus south, whether or not... Um, doing that would provoke the Southerners to violence and therefore you know, inviting the Southerners to, 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 to moral injury, right? In other words, were we doing so, was it true to our convictions if we did something that was provocative um, in that sense? And, and, the, and the answer from uh, A.J. Musty and Bayard Rustin and others was no, what we're doing is we're inviting the Southerners to a response, the segregationists to a response, and we're holding a mirror to them, and, and that is the most loving thing you can do, right? Um, uh, to confront people with, with the, the image of, of, of 
of who they've become as they've committed these acts of violence. And, um, and it was oriented towards wanting people to, to be able to be the, 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 the people that they believe themselves to be, right? And that's, that's an incredibly loving thing, you know? And I think, for me, one of the, the, the difficult things, because we have a culture that's so oriented towards punishment and, and, and punitive measures, and we want to punish people for, the, for what they've done, um, we don't talk about the fact that none of us were born with this desire to be evil. Right? None of us were, maybe that's a theological claim that we might have to discuss, but I don't believe that, you know? And I think that um, um, the, the power of love to, and it is both an internal, you know, I, another moment for A.J. Musty was, you know, he was demonstrating on a, on a picket line, um, and a reporter came up to him and said, Mr. Musty, do you believe that your demonstrating will change the country? And he responded by saying, uh, young man, I'm demonstrating so that my country doesn't change me. And so I, I think that there's this, this place where we have a responsibility to hold to, 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 to the power of love that we know to be true and to not allow the world around us to deaden that in ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really tempting, um, but it, it's a, and not allowing us to, not allowing that to die in ourselves is a part of what enables us to, to engage others in that way. But it's a, you know, it's a struggle. That's where I feel though that, you know, maybe this is kind of my thing, like the power of the words we use and to call these things love, right? And I don't know, like Courtney Martin, one of our columnists wrote this piece this week or last week about the problem with wanting the best for your kids. It's something like that. It's had this huge response, and it's about choices that white privileged people make about where their kids go to school because you want the best for your kids, right? And how, and, and this, you know, that there are a million, and there's so, it's about much more than this, that there's so many parenting books out there, but there's no parenting advice about how now people in the 21st century who don't want to perpetuate these systems that have been dehumanizing, how we start to make really granular choices with our lives and our children's lives to be part of creating that world we want to inhabit. And I think if you say to people, if people feel like, oh, so do I have to become an activist? That's problematic. But am I a lover? Right? Do I love the world? Do I love my children? Do I, do, I, do I know that other people love their children and what I want for mine children, right? So to me, that feels powerful. I, well, I'm just going to make, we're going to close in just a minute. Um, I just want to say, tonight, Courtney and Parker and Omid will be up here with Mariah. And that's also going to be just a big conversation with you, called it a fireside chat. And I know if you've been reading them all these years, you know, whatever you have on your mind to talk to them about, and in just a minute, Maria and Jose is going to be in here, our great comrade in public broadcasting and podcasting and talking about who's in the room. Because I think one of the strange challenges we have now, all of us who long to be having new conversations, is we don't actually know how to get into the room with the people we want to be conversing with. Um, I wonder if, um, 
um, Lucas, you, there's, here's, this is something you said about Vincent Harding. And I wondered, it's not a poem, but I wonder, it feels poetic to me. I wondered if maybe to end it, I wish you, you guys are so great. And what I'm so excited about is that you're out there doing what you're doing, and everybody in here is doing what they're doing, and we're all in conversation. This is, this is a work in progress that we're experiencing and participating in. So, can you read it? Yeah. It's faint. Um, wait, this is... You, you said this. This is what I wrote about. Yeah, Vincent you can... <laughs> at first I thought you were saying that... No, no, um, you wrote it. That but he wrote you it. You can also say it in your own current yeah, no, words if you'd I mean, like. No, okay. this was true of, of Vincent Harding, who uh, was a dear mentor and friend and who I miss. Um, he could see us each of us whom he encountered. He did not see the caricatures of ourselves, nor what our ideological commitments had made us, or our fear had tricked us into becoming. He could see us, see in us who we were destined to be, more fully human. And he used his gift of sight to help us see ourselves and each other. Speak about that gift of sight, where it came from, what he taught you about. Oh, I, that was like that. that's me. No, that's that what that I was going to ask you. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I was reading it. I was thinking. Okay, production moment. You want to read it again, just without the notes? Without that last part. Yeah. <laughs> As our benediction. <laughs> let's just, let's, let's go back, forget that part happened. <laughs> he could see us, each of us whom he encountered. He did not see the caricatures of ourselves, nor what our ideological commitments had made us, or our fear had tricked us into becoming. He could see in us who we were destined to be, more fully human, and he used his gift of sight to help us see ourselves and each other. Lucas Johnson, Rami Nashashibi, thank you.